Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're again going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, that thing that we're supposed to be seeking, repenting and seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Unfortunately, a lot of the ministers today talk about the kingdom of God as some place you go after you die. And it's not. It's for the living. It's right now. It's at hand. And we should be seeking it with all our heart, mind, and soul. So what does that mean? What does that look like? How do you do that? Well, that's the $64 trillion question that uh, everybody should be trying to find out and uh, seeking in their hearts and in their minds. Uh, a lot of stuff has been going on in the network this week, or at least in my life, and people calling and people talking and people questioning, trying to figure out what's what and how everything works. And uh, I've got a number of different questions that came to me. Uh, the difference between, you know, the ministers of the church and the congregations of Christ. And I, I say not congregations of the church because the church doesn't own the congregation. The congregation are to be free souls under God who gather together in free assemblies. What's a free assembly? A free assembly is people who gather together when they are no longer gathered together when they walk back home or go down to the street and and turn left they are not a free assembly anymore they are separate they are individuals they are not a corporation they're not an association they're a free assembly you have the right to freely assemble and that's what a congregation is it's that free assembly Anything that reeks of the fact that the congregation is more than a free assembly is not a good thing. And that leaves you as a free soul under God that comes together in love. Well, love is not a corporate item. Love is not something, you know, love has to do with uh, morality, honor, patience. It It's not something that you can bind or, or binds you in any way, shape, or form other than spiritually because basically love is spiritual. Love is actually the frequency of God's heart, the frequency that God's heart generates. Now, I'll, I'll bring that back into the conversation probably towards the end, but uh, everything is frequency. God breathed and creation began. Everything you see, touch, feel, is a result of frequency, vibration. Something vibrating at a particular rate creates atoms of helium, hydrogen, uh, iron, uh, carbon, whatever. They are all just frequencies vibrating at a particular rate. And if you change the vibration of lead, it becomes gold. And, and that's because the essence of everything is frequency. Now, um, 
one of the topics besides the fact that the, the ministers are different than than the congregation or the laity that's something a lot of people don't like because somehow or other they they imagine or suggest that the ministers are better or because they are different than the laity in their status in the world and uh that's what we're supposed to be we're, the ministers were to be in the world but not of the world now the laity really shouldn't be of the world either as that term is used in the bible now there's lots of worlds mentioned in the bible the end of the world is not the same word for world as when jesus says my kingdom is not a part of the world it's a different word entirely it's not even a similar word. When he says end of the world, he's talking about the end of an age, a period of time. And after the end of the period of time they were in, there would be another period of time after that. Nowhere does he talk about the end of the planet. He talks about new heaven and new earth. But, you know, every spring you have a new earth. Uh, after a flood, you have a new earth. After earthquake, you may have a new earth from a certain point of view. When they talk about a new heaven, well, there was a new heaven as far as the sky is concerned after the flood. You had rainbows. Evidently, before the flood, you didn't have rainbows. You didn't see rainbows in the sky like we see now. Why? Because probably the atmosphere of the earth was different. And the way in which the light shined through the earth and the atmosphere of the earth was different. And there's a lot of reason to believe that through geological studies. But we're really usually dealing with theories. But supposedly there was this sign in the sky, this rainbow that you could see after the flood that was supposed to be a symbol of that. But that's somewhat conjecture when we talk about that. And it's really not important to faith. But these are symbols that we see passed down through the ages that are supposed to relate to certain events that could be cosmic in nature, causing a worldwide flood that could have a cosmic origin. But it's not essential to understanding the message of Christ. It's, it's just in the periphery of the gospel. And there could be a message in it for individuals. To help them overcome or see certain things. So, but what are the essentials of this process of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Well, one thing, um, besides the fact that the, the ministers have a particular job and therefore their status is slightly different than that of the laity, the people in congregations, and it's because Jesus called out his ministers, appointed them a kingdom, we see them appointing men picked by the people to do certain tasks in order to facilitate a daily ministration because all Christians could no longer go to the social welfare and the free bread offered by Rome or the Pharisees through their uh, system of Corbin. They couldn't go to that anymore. They were told not to, not to be like that, to be different than that. So they created a separate system of social welfare and it was operated through the church and it was based on faith, open charity and the perfect law of liberty. Today, 
The church has, you know, you can donate to a church and it may have some charitable things that it does out in the streets or in Mexico or in Africa. But it doesn't have any daily ministration for its own people. 90% or more of the daily ministration for the people, the widows, the orphans, the needy of their society is done by men who exercise authority. Early Christians wouldn't do that. They would die rather than do that. Modern Christians do that all the time. Distinctive difference. And so, if you were to take on that role again, where you are now going to go back to what the early church was doing and have a daily ministration that takes care of all the social welfare needs of your society, of Christians, of people practicing pure religion, you would begin to find out how important it is that your ministers have that unique and different status. But it's not just a economic status or a political status or a uh, status of citizenry. That was another thing I added to a particular website, a little clearer explanation of the word polis, which we see in the New Testament describing what we call a city. Nazareth was supposed to be a city, yet archaeologists can't find any evidence that there was a city by the name of Nazareth that Jesus could become come from. But Jesus was from the polis of Nazareth. Well, the polis of Nazareth is not a place. And, and we show scholars who say over and over again that a polis was not a place. It was more like a fellowship or brotherhood. And that's what Nazareth was. And Jesus was from that fellowship. So now you want to know what was that fellowship doing. Because that's what he was teaching his apostles how to be also. This brotherhood of righteousness. To provide a service for the people. Feed my sheep. But that service was only provided by faith, hope, and charity. Something modern Christians have completely abandoned. And yet, here I, I, I came in contact with somebody who has written a bunch of books. And uh, I'm supposed to read his books. And they're about Christian economics. He has a highly evolved plan of Christian economics. So what is Christian economics? Because certainly there's an economic system attached somehow, in some way or some form, to the kingdom of God. There's some kind of economics there. And now, how does that work? Uh, you know, what does that look like? Uh, what drives a, a, an economy if the economy is a Christian economy? Now, I, I looked up a lot of different places to, you know, Google, you know, what drives economies. And just to see what other people's opinion were. And, of course, we, I see things like oil, oil prices, uh, credit, you know, what, what, uh, what you can borrow money for, you know, wages. They say all these things drives the economy. Well, that's, that's really not what drives the economy. That, in a sort of way, you could say that, but what what drives those things? Well, you know, the price of oil and everything. Well, those are in measuring the economy and how the economy is functioning. People, you can measure the price of oil. You can measure the price of commodities and what they're selling for. 
You can measure the price of credit. How much does it cost to borrow money? But, and so therefore, economists will use those items to determine whether or not the economy is successful or failing. But that's not really what's driving the economy. What really drives the economy is people. What they're thinking, what they're doing, what they want to do, what they're willing to do. That's what's going to drive the economy. Now, there will be other factors, such as natural resources, etc. But it's amazing, with people who are innovative, they will come up with, you know, if they don't know how to make iron ships, they will make ships out of wood. And if they don't have any wood where they're at, they will find, they will move to a place where there's wood so that they can make ships. And that, of course, what the sea kings, were, sea kings were doing. They were finding that certain places that the ships they built took them to these other places that had different kinds of wood. And those woods were often better for building ships. So they moved there <laughs> to build ships in those other places. And then they took those ships and moved to other places. And then they found a place where there was iron and they had a trade good for iron. They would pick up that iron and take it somewhere else. And it was, you know, that's why they call them sea kings. Because they became the king of the seas. Because they learned to build better and better ships that could go all over the Mediterranean, even out into the Atlantic, and evidently even all the way to the Americas. There's a lot of evidence that people were actually sailing all the way across the Atlantic way back in ancient, ancient history. But anyway, uh, what drove them to do that? People. People with interests. People trying to find something, uh, develop something, produce something, become wealthy, whatever. Well, So what the motivation of those people are is what drives the, the economy. So how do we govern the motivation of people? You know, why are people willing to work or go that extra mile? Uh, why are they willing to risk their life to cross a sea in a boat? And I've mentioned several times, and I just find it absolutely astounding. These men who came across, I think it was like 19 men or some small number of men, who came across the Atlantic Ocean in a boat called the Sparrow, which was really nothing but a big, long, open rowboat. And it wasn't even that long, not that big. I mean, you put it in my living room. And, uh, and and the remnants of it are, you just look it up, Google it, Sparrow. You can still see the size of the boat because they still have some of the wood, supposedly, from that boat. And you can see the frame and the length and the size. And these guys sailed. This, this is Mayflower days. Came across in this boat. They almost all died when they got here. Fortunately, other people helped them out, which was the beginning of part of a Christian economy in America where people actually went out of their way to save other people they did not even know. That is a major part of a Christian economy. But we'll get to that. What is the best way to encourage the people to produce? Do do people just work to live? Is that why people work? Why they gather, you know, uh, hunt and gather food? I mean, there's fear of punishment 
and deprivation that if you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, or if you don't work, I'll beat you. But, uh, you know, or take away your privileges in prison. That's a common thing to get people to work. Uh, fear of starvation is a great in, uh, motivator and sometimes a great innovator. You know, I mean, like the the movie Castaway. You know, he had he he was he was extremely motivated to figure out how to start fires, to uh, uh, go fishing, and uh, he got very good at it because starvation was his alternative. You know, not that he wasn't industrious guy, but he learned had to learn a whole new way to exist, and hunger is the great motivator. You know, it's like the dog who's fat and lazy and is always fed and just lists around and the mother can't, the owner can't figure out what's the matter with this dog and leaves it with a vet. And the vet, after three days, the dog is all perky and jumping around and the vet simply didn't feed it for three days. And, uh, it suddenly got interested in doing something. Because <laughs> hunger is a great motivator. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people would get off of welfare or not be on welfare or get back to work if there wasn't any welfare. Unfortunately, a lot of those people might go into stealing and robbing and all sorts of other immoral activities. So, that doesn't really motivate a good economy, hunger. It's not a guarantee that you're going to have a moral society or an orderly society at all. But that is there. It's part of our environment. And uh, and so it will always be a contributing factor. But what, what do you want as a primary contributing factor to a Christian economy? Uh, do people work harder for wealth and power or wantonness and pleasure? I mean, you know, people, you know, somebody was, uh, some kid got a job and he was working because he wanted to buy a particular game. And he saved his money until he had enough money to buy that game and then he quit his job. And he went and bought the game and wasted his time with <laughs> the game. <laughs> you know, so that's really, that's kind of a boom and bust kind of economy. You know, uh, you you want something that's really uh, a tr- truly great motivator in society. It is really not self-interest that is the great motivator. You know, what you want, the pleasure that you will get, the power you will get, the wealth you will get. What you really want as a motivator in a Christian society is an unselfish interest for the well-being of others. And that usually begins in the family. And that desire, you know, where you go to work to take care of your family, your wife, your children, your infants, that salts the very flavor of society. It it changes society itself. It alters the spirit that dwells in society. Now, remember when we talked about at the very beginning that, you know, all creation is spiritual. God breathed His Spirit upon the face of the earth and it formed the existence of what we call reality today. It was His Spirit that gave life or form 
to creation. So, what spirit is giving form to your economy, to your society? What life are you breathing into your society? If you're motivated because you want wealth and power over others, if you're motivated because you want pleasure or uh, comfort for yourself, that's going to impart in your society a certain spirit. And it's going to alter your society. It's going to create a certain kind of society. Several people got a hold of me this week and... uh, wanted to talk about getting out of the system. They want to out of the system. They find the system oppressive. They find it pagan. They find it, uh, what were some of the words they were using? Uh, uh, you know, you know, evil, oppressive, whatever. They don't like the system. And they want out of the system. They want to be separate from the system. But that's not really a good motivation. The good motivation is that you want to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And if you really want to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that's going to alter the frequency, the spirit that dwelleth in you. And if you want that, not just for yourself, but for others, for your children, for your neighbors, and for your children's children, that's going to change the spirit by which you move And therefore, the spirit by which you create in the environment in which you live. And therefore, it will alter the environment itself. Because you were made in the image of God. The spirit you move by is going to stamp its character on your society. First in your family and then in the rest of society. So if you see your family going, falling apart or your family falling short, the first thing you should question is, what spirit have I been moving by? See, there's a spirit of self-righteousness and there's a spirit of the righteousness of God. Those are two separate, different spirits. And the self-righteous people, like one person who called, probably not listening to the radio now, called and just rattled on about all the things that he knew you know, about uh, symbols. And that was another topic that I put out. Symbols of Christianity. You know, because he considers the cross to be a satanic symbol. And there is, you do find a cross in Satan worshiping. Usually it's an inverted cross. But you do find just the cross itself. You you find in ancient languages that the Tav that we know in the Hebrew, the original Tav was drawn like a doorway. And it represented faith. But eventually that that Tav was drawn another way. It was drawn like a cross. When it was drawn like a cross, something else was influencing the language and the society in which the Tav went from a doorway to a cross, which actually X's across the doorway and keeps you out. And this is because at different points in history, a different spirit is taking over in certain people claiming to be Christians, claiming to be Jewish, claiming to be followers of Yahweh, but are not. But anyway, we'll talk more about this when we come back.
Okay, well, we're back to Keys of the Kingdom, and um, we were going to be talking about the ebb and flow of economies and uh, the motivators of those economies. Almost all economies have an ebb and flow in them. They need to have that ebb and flow in them. You have night and you have day. You know, plants produce carbon dioxide at night, but they produce, produce oxygen during the day. Everything rests. All, all living creatures, they have to go and rest. And that's an adjustment period. That's something else is going on while you're resting. You're actually working to some degree while you're resting. You're resting certain muscles, but you're, you're devoting energy towards this thing called rest, which is a renewal of the body. Economies have to do this too. Now they either do it all at once, which is very hard on society when everybody is, you know, the economy, we call them depressions, are moving into this rest period or adjustment period. But the, in a natural Christian economy, there's a built-in ebb and flow. But it's because the economy is family-based and families are generationally designed. The ebb and flow in society is independent of the whole of society and dependent upon the family because family is central to that. When the state becomes your family, the state becomes your father, and the the whole of society is one generation with the state as the father, then the ebb and flow will be depression recession. I was just talking to somebody in real estate yesterday, and they're they're talking about the downturn that will be coming. They know it's coming. They've watched this. They've watched this process over and over again, and they just gear for it. It's the breathing in and breathing out of their economy, because there will be this. A boom in the economy and recession in the economy. They also know that there can be entire interruptions in the economy because the economy has a single life. The economy could literally just flat out die with the right parameters in place. And they also know that. But generally speaking, it's just this ebb and flow of breathing out and breathing in where you have a market economy and then you have, you know, a, buy, a seller economy and a buyer economy. And those reverse back and forth as the economy breathes in the whole of society. But if you have a family-based economy, then the generations are staggered and the ebb and flow is not so extreme as we see with recession and depressions. So, again, truly, the great motivator of society and economy of society is not self-interest, but unselfish interest which are born in the family. Now, a family can be selfish where they just put their family before everybody else. But then that's that will have its disadvantages too. But at least if you start with a family where you care about your sons, your daughter, now they're going to get married to somebody else because it, it's generational. They're, they will be the next generation. They're not going to get married to their brothers and sisters. They're going to get married to somebody outside their family. And this begins to tie this family to society. And then there's, you know, the family begins to have cousins. And the farther reaching you go, then you have this broader and broader society, this generational society based on family, but interconnecting through love and the union of marriage. And it's built in to this whole thing of family. This is how you get 
flocks and herds. They're, they end up being related. And uh, they ha- have this commonality in their ancestry. And that can be good, but then you can become centralized on the tribal aspect of society, and then you war against another tribe. But there's supposed to be this one uh, man kind, and they are all interrelated. And we're always, someone's always trying to divide us and conquer us. And we need to steer clear of that. And, but I'm going to toss, talk to you about human capital. And I don't like the word human, but it's what people use. The capital of man, which is man himself. And the, the man is capital. It is his resources. When, when I talk about capitalism, somebody was just defining capitalism and they Googled it. And there's a definition you get when you Google capitalism definition. And it's different. And if you look at the, all the definitions below that, when you Google it, you know, at, at Wikipedia, at Webster's, at uh, uh, the different dictionaries that you will also see show up when you Google the definition of capitalism, they all have a very similar definition. But Google's definition is quite different. It's almost a different word. You know, it talks about corporatism and all this stuff. You don't necessarily have that in the original definition of capitalism. And like I say, you know, the squirrel is the first capitalist. He is the means of production. He runs around. You see him busy, 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 running up and down the trees, collecting nuts for himself and for his family and for the next generation. He buries many of those nuts and some of them become oak trees, producing more nuts for the next generation. And he's very covetous of his territory, of the of the trees that he has growing near him. He certainly is covetous of those that he the nuts that he gathers and stores away, because that's the lifeblood of his family. He does get along with other squirrels like himself, but there can also become competition uh, against him and other squirrels like himself. And there certainly is a competition between like gray squirrels and red squirrels because there's a difference. But essentially, they are all capitalists. They take their energy, they gather what is theirs, and they defend what is theirs against those who would just take what is theirs rather than gather their own. And for generations, they cultivate the oak forests so there are lots of acorns dropping from trees and they can gather for their families. Squirrels were said to be able to travel from the east coast of the United States from from the, from where they could see the ocean all the way to the Mississippi and never touch the ground because the trees were so thick. And that was because squirrels had been capitalists here in America for years and years, gathering their nuts, protecting their territories, and raising their families. Now, we come along, and we want to gather what is ours. When the first Americans came here, they had a more communist kind of approach, you know, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. And they had a common storehouse. And you didn't get to keep the nuts you produced or gathered. You had to put them in the storehouse. And then someone else decided how to redistribute them. That was devastating to the economy of Americans. Because of the fact that everybody didn't work quite as hard as they 
probably should have. Some worked as hard as ever and saw the need and went and sacrificed until they died. And others didn't and they conserved their energy and fed off of the energy of others. And they lived. But they were parasitical in nature and they were creating a parasitical society. And every year they starved. When they said, no, what you produce is yours, you decide how it's distributed, there was prosperity. That's human nature. That is natural to do that. But they also had to learn to care about other people as much as they cared about their selves and their family. If they only cared about their family, there would be no next generation for their children to marry. They had to care about others. And then we see them even caring about these bunch of bachelors who didn't come over with family. I don't believe there was any women on board the Sparrow. And uh, they were dying, starving, ill-equipped. And the Indians were just waiting for them to die and steal what they did come with. And uh, they weren't helping them. And others came along, found about, heard about their plight. Because somebody went for help. And they came and they gathered them up, starving, fed them, got them back to their own settlement. And many of them lived. And probably there are generations today that are extended down from those men. What Americans were learning was how to care about one another. Of course, there was abuses. There was neglect. But overall, the spirit in America, because of the introduction of Christianity... I mean, this didn't exist amongst the Indians. The Indians were warring against each other, fighting for each other's territory. Uh, They were very tribal, just like red squirrels, gray squirrels. They were fighting. If you weren't... You know, this is why they had headdresses. This is why they cut their hair in a certain way. This is why they wear certain kinds of clothing. Because I'm with this tribe. And if my tribe's fighting your tribe, you're bad. I'm going to kill you if I find you on my hunting ground. They were doing this all over the Americas. Everywhere. They didn't, they, there was an attempt with the five nations, and eventually they call them the seven nations, to end that constant bickering and warfare. But the spirit remained. Because if you did not submit to the um, constitution of the five tribes, then they they had written right there when they wrote it out anyway. I don't know if it was the original intent. But by that time, the deal was that they would annihilate you. They would take away all your weapons, all your land, even completely annihilate you. They would certainly subjugate you and enslave you if you did not submit to their interpretation of the wampum of the five tribes, or five nations. And so that was the spirit that was still living amongst them. Like I said, it may not have been the original intent of those who devised this plan, but it was the intent at that time. And of course, as you judge, so shall you be judged. And so that's what happened to them. They, They believed in trial by combat, and they lost the war. Now, there were many, many... Uh, Christians and whites that were saving Indians and working with Indians, even marrying Indians. And uh, there were many um, that were abusing the Indians. But the same can be said of the Indians. There were many Indians who 
had a great loyalty to their allies and friends, the Europeans, and fought for them and protected them. And there were many that also were abusive and unjust, not only to the Europeans, but to themselves and to, uh, I mean, to other Indians like themselves. So, but that is a morality that is either passed down from generation to generation or not. Again, family was key and a loyalty to the family and but you had to have this moral virtuous criteria this family values was important but you also had this values of justice and mercy which it, Jesus calls the weightier matters law judgment mercy and faith that is essential to drive your economy your Christian economy in the right direction. You cannot be coveting your neighbor's goods, which the common storehouse is the coveting of your neighbor's goods, um, because you're hoping that your neighbor will produce enough that you get through. And you're depending, you, you, there's no way you can do this without some people having the right to take away from other people. So capitalism is a Christian concept in its original form. What you produce is yours. It's protected by the rest of society, not by the state. It's just protected by the rest of society. We don't want anybody stealing from your family because we don't want anybody stealing from our family. So we're going to travel through the wilderness if we find out that you're in trouble like the men of the sparrow. And we're going to save you. And we're going to help you. And and there were plenty of stories where... Uh, I mean, that's why the tribe that Squanto was with and Somerset was with wanted to ally themselves with these pilgrims uh, and strangers because they feared other Indian tribes coming in and annihilating them because they were in a weakened state. They they wanted the the allies of the European settlers to protect their own society. And it worked. And it worked rather well. But then there were there's always elements of division that come about. And there were battles. But you have to look at the whole picture to understand what was going on. So when families depend on their own resources rather than the entitlements, a certain frugality and economy is ingrained in the family values. They know that, you know, I have to put up enough firewood to keep my family warm this winter. I have to put up enough food to keep my family from starving this winter. And there's an economy and an efficiency that will be ingrained in a people when they know that we must depend upon our resources to make ends meet. Hard times, places where there's a winter, places where there are seasons and everything is not easy, makes for stronger families. And stronger family bonds. And that's where family values develop. But those those values, if they're going to be Christian, you have to love your neighbor as yourself, not just your family. So here comes that moral criteria. See, the Bible, Moses said that, Jesus said that. Why? Because that's an essential ingredient in establishing a viable economy. Is that you have to care about your neighbor. Well, caring about your neighbor is not a passing Obamacare. Caring about your neighbor is willing to take out of your storehouse, your personal family storehouse, 
in sharing with your neighbor. Now, how much does your neighbor need? You know, I mean, I've I've heard of stories where people, you know, claim that their child was sick and they were actually making their child sick and then begging for donations to help cure their child. And millions of dollars came in because they had a heart-wrenching story and it was presented really well and people were donating to it. But there was no oversight. And then eventually they found out that the mother was actually poisoning the daughter to make her sick. To get this sympathy. Because she was in charge of the trust and get all this money that came in to help her daughter while she was actually hurting her daughter. You have to have oversight. So this is this is why the church in the wilderness existed. This is why Jesus Christ appointed a church is to give some oversight to that. The individual congregation must have oversight on the minister they pick. And that's why they get to pick the minister. They don't necessarily, you know, they may look out amongst themselves and pick men they trust, but the minister must be appointed by the church. And if you don't think that church is providing a daily ministration through faith, hope, and charity, or at least working in that direction, then you should go to another church. If your church is sending you to men who exercise authority for your social welfare, it's not a church established by Christ. It's certainly not operating with the Spirit of Christ because Christ said it was not to be that way with you. Yet you see in supposedly Christian communities all over the world, that's where people go for their welfare. They go to the state, to the men who exercise authority, to the fathers of the earth, to the benefactors who take from your neighbor to provide you with benefits. That is totally anti-Christ. Totally. And it's very easy to see if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. So anyway, often social welfare by the state rather than by charity and charitable institutions undermines the natural virtues cultivated in a truly moral society based on, you know, faith, hope and charity and the perfect law of liberty. Where virtue is prized as a noble character. That is that is a that society will be driven by a different spirit and it will create a different society, a strong and independent society. A society based on socialist institutions will weaken the poor. We we see that in the, the modern welfare state. We see that in places like Detroit. We see it in places like Chicago and Baltimore. That they're weakening society. They're breaking down the family. You you look at the black community, and it, it, this is spreading to the white community, even to the Asian community, that these communities are uh, becoming more and more filled with single-parent families, which is not a family. You know, the father is out of the picture. Or in many cases, the mother's out of the picture. The the fellow calling me up and talking about, you know, the cross being this terrible symbol of Satan and all this stuff. I asked him, so where's your wife? Well, his wife went off with another man, had a baby by another man, and and left him. And I asked him, so did you have any children? And he never answered that. I asked him several times, and he never answered that. Sounds to me like his life's pretty much a mess. But he wants to look at the crosses on the top of church steeples and find fault with that rather than look into his own heart and find out what's going on in there. 
Why was his wife driven to another man? Did he have any part in that? I don't know. He didn't even want to talk about that. He just wanted to talk about all these symbols that are wrong and, you know, that they, they have all these. And there certainly are a lot of uh, philosophies or ideas floating around in the modern Christian church that really are not supported by what Christ said. And he's right about that. But how does that make him better? What makes him better is willing to look at his problems. Somebody else tells me that they only joined our network because they wanted to figure out how to get out of the system. So I sent them a link to uh, Exiting Babylon, which they thanked me for sending, but they hadn't read it yet. Because after they read it, they may not thank me. I don't know. I hope they do. Not that I need thanks, but I hope they will only thank me if they see the wisdom of what I wrote in there. <laughs> so, and the wisdom is is that you have to repent. That's how you seek the kingdom of God and seek that kingdom of God and seek the righteousness of God, which means to be loyal to your family, take care of your children, help take care of your grandchildren, and be a blessing to all the people around you in society. Be constantly walking in forgiveness and charity and love for your fellow man and certainly for your spouse. If you are doing that, you are getting close to the kingdom and the world, the kingdoms of the world will cast you out. But if you're not doing that, then I can't help you. Because that's, that's what's going to strengthen you as a, a citizen of God's kingdom, as a citizen of God's polis, because that's what it is. It's a polis. It's and, and now you you have to go and see what I wrote about polis. We talked a little bit about it at the beginning of the show, but what is that? It's a, it's a fellowship and a brotherhood, and it's where you are bound not by contracts and covenants and constitutions, but by love, and that love has to be the love of Christ, not. Loving Christ, of course you will love Christ, but the love of Christ, the same kind of love that Christ had for others. What kind of love was that? That was a love that brought him here to serve, to sacrifice, to forgive, to share with you what God has given him. I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me. This is what Christ is doing. But the modern socialist state makes the family superfluous. You know, you don't need your kids to take care of you because you got Social Security. As a matter of fact, a lot of your kids may be living at your house while you're collecting your Social Security check. Because they're not, they don't really understand the kingdom. They're not really seeking to be that independent soul under God. That is... That it is a viable element of a Christian economy. They won't be industrious. They won't be fruitful. They will depend upon the fruit that others produce to provide for themselves and probably not provide for their own families, their own children, their own spouse. Oh, they'll have all kinds of flowery reasons why, oh, we got to go this way, we got to go that way. But they're not going to be following the kingdom of God. And they may have some insight. 
and understanding of the truth. But they don't have insight and understanding of their own sloth and iniquity. They gloss over that. They depend upon, you know, past laurels of things that they have done or maybe things that they have discovered that they are the blessed, they are the elect, they are the chosen. But the simple matters, they neglect. The basic matters, they neglect. Anyway, we're going to go and take this another direction when we come back to the keys of the kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We were talking about a Christian economy. And uh, like I said, we're going to shift gears here in a minute. Uh, and, and I saw a video today. It was put together by Nigel Stanford. And uh, it has to do with somatics and uh, sound vibration. And it's it's kind of interesting. He's put together a couple of videos that are, are very interesting Entertaining in any way. And uh, he shows how frequencies, this uh, this idea of somatics, is uh, where you, you put some sort of material on a uh, substance and you modulate the, the vibrational uh, sounds that pass through that object and it creates patterns on the surface of that uh, material whether it's a liquid or small metal particles or whatever. And and he puts together a kind of entertaining video playing some music where you see the sounds constantly uh, changing and uh, and vibrating and, uh, and altering the uh, patterns on the plates or water falling or water, you know, popping up off of a you know, water or oil or something popping off of uh, metallic plates. And that goes back to what we said at the beginning, that God breathes upon the water. He breathes upon the earth and he breathes into the clay, that this Adama clay, and it alters it. It gives it life. It, uh, It causes it to change fundamentally. And this is what being born again is really all about, is this changing fundamentally. And uh, we'll talk more about that later. But uh, I wanted to finish this thought about the socialism undermining the family. And, of course, communism is just a more extreme form of socialism. Even democracy. I mean, the one person you could find in history who was advocating democracy, most of the early founding fathers did not advocate democracy. Even as late as 1927, the Army Field Manuals told us that army, that democracy was a bad thing. This is U.S. government Army Field Manual. That it's, you know, evil uh, form of government. 
but by 1945, suddenly somebody changed that. And democracy became a good thing. And it's what we're fighting for. And so, the minds of the people are just altered by changing the definition. Just like somebody who's written several books on the evils of capitalism, uh, who doesn't even know the definition of capitalism. Somebody said, you need to get a dictionary. And so, he Googled it. And he, he just copied and pasted the Google definition of capitalism. And the Google definition of capitalism is not anywhere like the definitions, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago of what the word capitalism is. And, of course, the word capitalism is a fairly newly formed word. I think it's in like 1800s it first showed up. And uh, But, basically, capitalism is the private ownership and control of the means of production, whatever... In other words, you are mostly that means of production. So it's a private ownership and control of you. Your labor is yours. What you produce with your labor, gather with your labor, is yours. You know, if you mine gold out of the ground, that gold is yours. You may have a claim on that particular spot that you're mining because you're altering that spot and you're digging out the gold. You you got a mine. And you're digging, and so nobody else can come into the mine that you just dug and take the gold away from you. You have a property right to that hole in the ground that you dug, and you're mining that gold out. And the gold is yours, and the right to mine in that hole is yours. Um, and there are limitations to that, because somebody may make a mine, you know, 100 feet over, and it's not on your claim. Uh, but it's getting some of the same gold that you might have got to. But he's got his own hole and he can mine that. And this is, you know, where you draw those lines, that's up to that mercy and justice that's supposed to be written in your heart. And where does that come from? It comes and is born in good families that practice the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Which has nothing to do with capitalism. Capitalism is devoid of that moral judgment. It's just what you produce is yours. That's it. Now, if you're going to use a moral judgment to decide how to disperse your wealth, who you're going to share it with. Maybe you want to give it to the Church of Satan. Maybe you want to give it to the Catholic Church. Maybe you want to give it to, you know, just your neighbor. You want to put kids through college like my great-grandfather did. He became wealthy as a wheat farmer and retired at 45 and put, you know, numerous kids all the way through college at his own expense because he had the money to do it with. And he just chose to do that. So, but those moral choices are yours in capitalism. They're not somebody else's. You can't, capitalism and socialism don't really mix. European countries are trying to do that. But what they're doing is taking, they're, they're simply uh, doing the tying the carrot to a string and dangling it out in front of the people that, you know, like uh, in front of the donkey, so that the donkey is constantly trying to get the carrot, and he keeps walking down the road to get closer and closer to the carrot. But you've got it on a pole on the end of a string, and so he never gets to the carrot. So that's that's not really capitalism. Some people might call it uh, socialist capitalism, but uh, it's it's fake. It's not real because you don't really have control of the means of production. You never get the carrot. 
Because if you ever do start getting rich, some socialists or communists will take away the extra and redistribute it for you. They're not going to allow you that choice. And so now that's a process to get to the point where you don't have those choices anymore. But the first thing they do is they say, okay, let's have public schools. Education's good. You want your kids to be educated, don't you? Let's have public school. Well, you just stepped over a line. Now you say it's okay to take from your neighbor, to tax your neighbor on his property so that you can provide schools, which is a good thing. Education is a good thing. The problem is, is that what happens is that somebody begins to alter what your kids are taught. And, you know, it's only a matter of time where the definition of capitalism on Google will now become the definition of capitalism in the Webster's Dictionary and on Wikipedia. Just like now, democracy is a great thing. You know, a hundred years ago, democracy was an evil form of government. But now it's it's what we're fighting for in America. So how did that happen? Somebody changed the definition of religion. Somebody changed the definition of democracy. Somebody changed the definition of capitalism. And they changed your mind with that. And they were able to do this because you had already changed the pattern of your life from independent families educating their children and responsible for the education of their children. They might come together in private schools, but they control those schools. Then you turned it into public education. At first, you had a great deal of control over public education. Uh, you know, you were on the, you know, parents committee and all these kinds of things and had a great deal of input. But now you, you don't even have control over the textbooks that you use. You can't fire the teachers. You, you have to accept their ideas. I mean, the idea, if I went to the one room schoolhouse back in 1910 in Summer Lake here, and they, they built it, the people built it, and, uh, they hired a teacher to be in it, and, uh, to teach their kids, and then I came along and says, okay, now, you've hired this teacher, she has to have special courses, that I design, and you can't fire her unless I approve that you fire her. Now, I'm from another community. I'm not from here. I'm from the federal government, but I'm here to help. They would have never tolerated that. They would have never put up with that. They would have said, that's ridiculous, get out of here, and they'd run you out with pitchforks and shovels. But now, slowly, They turned over more and more responsibility to the government. First it was state governments, and then eventually more and more state governments depended on handouts from the federal government. Before you know it, what they teach is dependent upon the federal government. What they, who they can fire and can't fire is controlled by the federal government. And so somebody else now has strings they can pull 3,000 miles away and affect what your kids are going to learn in your school. That's how it works. You stepped over a line. And that line goes back farther than the fact that you should not be coveting your neighbor's goods to get benefits, even if those benefits have value and benefit for society. Because if you're coveting your neighbor's goods to get those benefits, you have changed the spirit that is moving in your society, that is motivating and controlling your society. And it is not the spirit of God. And it will alter your society 
to meet these other things, which is why you're at this point where nobody's arguing over you sh- whether or not you should covet your neighbor's goods to provide health care. They're just trying to argue over what what kind of health care are we going to provide by coveting our neighbor's goods. The question of well, should we be coveting our neighbor's paycheck and his, what our neighbor has and what our neighbor produces in order to get what we want? I mean, this is the whole minimum wage deal. You know, uh, they, they can't see anything wrong with that. You see, because their minds have been changed. Somebody else has been writing on their minds and on their hearts, and it's not the Spirit of God. And you allowed this from the beginning. Where Where is the beginning? Was it with public schools? Actually, it goes back even farther than that. In the Ten Commandments, according to the Ten Commandments, you're to make no covenants. No covenants, no contracts, no leagues, because that word for covenant is also translated league, and it means contract. With the people where you go. You're not supposed to make any. That's against the Ten Commandments. That's a violation of the Ten Commandments. But yet you do have contracts. You do have covenants. And you do have constitutions. Contract with America. So now somebody gets to decide for you. And you find yourself in bondage. Now how are you going to get out of bondage. Unless you turn around and go back the other way. If you want to go be free. That's your motivation. You want to be separate and free. You got the wrong motivation. You don't have the motivation of Christ. You don't have Christ in your heart. You don't have Yeshua in your heart. You don't have Yahweh in your heart. Because in their heart, if you had Him in your heart, you would be asking me questions like, how do I help my neighbor be free? Nobody's calling me up and asking me that. You know, uh, I, I, I know people whose son is now facing jail time. I, I, I don't know the particulars of it. But uh, my question is, how can we help him be free? If he should be free, maybe he should go to jail. I don't know. I don't know what the, the deal is. Uh, chances are, he's not going to learn anything in jail. But he may need to pay a price for something he's done. And I, I can tell you, you know, that this is, once you begin to understand the principles of the kingdom, a lot of your problems will start melting away. But people don't understand those principles of the kingdom. They, they're they not willing to go back far enough to see the root causes of their present dilemma. Their personal root causes of their present dilemma. They just want the pain to go away. They want the effects. We live in a cause and effect universe. They have caused the present effect, but they don't want to look at how they've caused it. They just want the effect to go away. It doesn't work that way. Now, in order to understand how we got all here, I've written a lot of articles. I have one on sophistry that talks about the altars. The fellow who is pushing what he thinks is a Christian economy. And, you know, I've only read a little bit of it. I... I don't know if his books are free online. He only has a few articles up there that I could read. and uh, But basically, it doesn't sound real Christian to me. And when I talk to him about what we're doing, he says it's all confusing. And, uh, I, and it's because he has all these preconceived notions. We had the same problem with the, the Jim that we talked about on previous shows, 
who finds our website all confusing. You know, like, he says, I can't find out if you have, you know, what your statement of belief is. Well, statement of belief is a creed. Very first page, every single page, there's a link right over on the side to creed. And if you search the word creed on in the search engine, which is on every single page, it will give you several different long, extensive articles and short statements as to what our creed is. And, of course, I admit that a creed is a short statement, and so it's not all-inclusive, but we're talking about principles. But when somebody reads it, they say, well, what about this? And they're using other terminology. And we actually addressed it, but we didn't use his terminology. And when you see people doing this, where you have to say it their way, their terminology, even though that terminology may not even be in the Bible, you have to phrase it the way in which they say you have to phrase it, or they just can't get it or see it. They're probably not getting it at all in, to begin with. They're worshiping their ideology. Their ideology is their idol. Their theosophy is their idol. They have created God in their own mind. And that's what they're worshiping, is that creation in their mind, not the real God. And so you'll have to wear certain kind of clothes, you'll have to say things with certain kind of words, or they can't even get you. They, They don't understand you, because they're not thinking rationally to begin with. They're thinking in symbols, they're thinking in in words and phrases that they worship those words and phrases. You have to say, I accept the Lord Jesus Christ in my heart as my personal Savior, or you're out. Because they worship that phrase. They don't actually worship the real Christ. And you can tell another thing when a person doesn't worship the real Christ is they're not willing to look at themselves and their own anger and their own resentment and their own impatience. You know, they might look at it a little bit, but not really in depth. You want to talk to them about that, they want to talk about something else. Another sign is is that they're they're quick to criticize individuals and pick at the individual. I would rather agree with the individual. I, I'm anxious to find out where we disagree, but I also want to find out where we agree and find out if we really do agree. But what you'll see in some people is they will invent characteristics in their opponent or who they label as their opponent they will say oh you said this and you'll say I didn't say that well I think you said that somewhere well I can't find where I said that well you mentioned it first no I didn't mention it first I, I, I got you know that's one of the wonderful things the email you can go back and say no I never said that there, there's everything I said I never said that they paraphrase what you said to a point where it means something else. And then they argue against what they paraphrased, which is incorrect. I agree, that's incorrect. I would argue against that. But I didn't say that. And and they do this. These people are not in touch with reality. I would like to help them get in touch with reality, but they have to want to see reality. And this is going to bring us to another topic that we're going to discuss about circumcision. You know, we we talk about circumcision. Circumcision is cutting off this foreskin and everything. And I could show you in the Hebrew language, it doesn't necessarily mean cutting off the foreskin. I can show you in the Old Testament, numerous times they talk about circumcision of the heart. That didn't just show up in the New Testament for the first time. That's what it was all about from the very beginning. A circumcision of the heart. 
But people who want to identify circumcision as a cutting off of a physical foreskin, if you don't do that, you're out. And if you do do that, you're in. Balderdash. Bunk. That doesn't mean that at all. They worship the metaphor, not the meaning of the metaphor. And Paul was finally realizing this and saying that circumcision is nothing. It's the circumcision of the heart that is everything. And people said, wow, Paul was, you know, he was off the wall and he was all out of it and everything. But you can go back to the Old Testament. Numerous times, numerous times, they talk about circumcision of the heart being what's important. So what is that circumcision of the heart? And so in my articles on sophistry, I talk about altars. I talk about clay altars and stone altars. I talk about the golden calf. The golden calf was not like you see in the movie Moses whatsoever. I mean, it may have been a big statue and it may have been made out of gold or gold leaf over and over again and laid on there to make this big, huge statue. And the more you deposit, the bigger the statue got. But that was a bank. That was a national bank. And they, and they were putting that this, their wealth in this national bank and this was binding them together. All the city-states did this. You can study it. This golden calf, there was a purpose to it, a practical purpose to bind the people together so that you stayed with the community and defended the golden calf because that was your wealth, it was everybody else. It was a common purse. It runs towards evil. runs towards iniquity. According to Proverbs. And of course, that's what... But if you don't know that, if you think it was like people dancing around a golden statue and that's idolatry, no. That's not what it is. Red Heifer, like I say, the article on Red Heifer, we show you, has nothing to do with a bovine. Nothing to do with a cow. Nothing to do with the color red. Nothing at all. Doesn't have anything to do with setting a cow on fire outside the city walls. These are metaphors trying to show you just actually talking about foreign aid, if you must know right now. So anyway, once you start understanding that people are worshiping the metaphor and that the Old Testament is true, but you have to understand how to read the Old Testament. You have to understand the symbols of the Old Testament, the metaphors, the allegories. And and those allegories will be written in actual history. But they're expressing ideas, concepts, precepts, moralities. What is law, judgment, mercy, and faith? If you understood that, now you can go back to your Christian economy. What is that Christian economy? Is essential that you love your neighbor as yourself. And you have to live in the institution of God, which is the family. You have to care for your family. You have to care for your children. You have to care for your spouse. You have, that means you're going to have to forgive them. And you're going to have to sacrifice your time, your energy for them. But you also have to love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighboring families as yourself. Not just those that love you. but Because what grace have you if you only love those who love you? You have to even love your enemy. And this will create a Christian economy. So what are the three driving factors of a Christian economy? Just weights and measures. You know, not lies and, and notes and all that stuff. Just weights and measures. 
That actually requires a just heart and mercy, which is, again, attending to those weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. That's why they're weightier. That's why Jesus says they're weightier matters. And then you have to uh, be freely engaged in your family from generation to generation, which means you're going to have to love your neighboring families as much as you love your own. Because you don't know where your generations are going to go. So you, you need to care about other families near and far as much as you care about your own. This will drive your economy in a Christian fashion, in a Christ-like fashion. And so anyway, now back to somatics. You know, it's it's a Greek word that means wave. Uh, it, it's a subset of module vibrational phenomena where frequency, you know, will be like in a plate and it goes out to the end and it bounces back and then it will create these patterns where these frequencies meet on this plate and you'll see them. And, uh, you know, it, it's a term that was coined by Hans Jenny. Uh, he was a Swiss uh, follower of the philosophical school known as Anthroposophy, which uh, actually is kind of a creation of uh, Rudolf Steiner, uh, who po- postulates the existence of this uh, objective or intellectual comprehensible spiritual world that is accessible by direct experience through inner development. You know, I mean... Now, that's a mouthful. So, what what does that actually mean? Rudolf Steiner uh, was kind of the father of the Waldorf schools, which are all over the country. And he had a lot of different ideas. And I don't agree with every one of his ideas. But he was certainly realizing that everything is spiritually driven. And that is basic to the biblical text. Is that God's Spirit breathed upon the earth. But we have also rejected part of God's Spirit, which is like rejecting part of the harmony of God's spirit you know like taking some of the frequencies out that we don't want to have anything to do with that are actually part of God such as forgiveness <laughs> you know and sacrifice and giving and so that's why Christ had to come back and reteach us these things because we didn't want to have anything to do with those we wanted to live this selfish existence coveting our neighbor's goods and Jesus says no you got to go back and receive all of the frequencies of God's word. And so these are the things that we're missing again. You know, we're coveting our neighbor's goods through the agency of governments. And that's why healthcare is so important and popular. Even amongst the people who want to get rid of Obamacare, they still want to have healthcare. They just don't want to have it in that form. But I I think it's good to have healthcare, but it has to be by free will offerings, which is what the church should be doing. It has to be by charity. It has to be by love. Otherwise, you don't have the frequency of God, uh, the somatics of God in what you're doing. And you will not have the image of God manifested in what you produce. You will have a society that is not of God. doesn't have any new symbols, although the symbols, you may find the symbols there. But it, that's that's incidental to it. The real thing is that you're moving according to the spirit of the the righteousness of God. That's why you're supposed to seek the kingdom of God. That's the right to be ruled by God and 
His righteousness, which means you have to love your neighbor as yourself in real ways. So if you really want to leave the system of the world, you have to leave behind the character of the world. You have to stop being selfish. You have to start being forgiving. You have to go and apologize for the mean and cruel things and the neglectful things that you've done. And you have to apply yourself to taking care of your children and your grandchildren and doing right by your family. And then you will be on your way towards the kingdom. And if you really head towards the kingdom, the world will spit you out, will cast you out. And you will survive that event because you will have the grace of God. But you have to do it with your whole heart, mind, and soul. So anyway, we'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I just see that I just got a message from someone in South Africa and I was going to try to read it and incorporate it in the show, but I'll have to save it for the show later on this afternoon. (laughs) So we were talking about uh, Christian economy and uh, what is Christian economics? How does it work? And of course, there's an economy within the individual body and the individual body of a man physical body, is his temple of the Holy Ghost. And in, because in your body is where your soul, your spirit resides. Well, does, is your soul and spirit compatible with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit of God, the spirit and character, the comforter of God. Is that spirit going to fit in with your spirit? Well, you need to repent. Of the ideas that you have accepted, the philosophies, the ideologies, the uh, judgments that you have accepted that are simply not in accordance or in accord with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Unforgiveness is not in accord with Christ. Uh, Resentment, impatience, intolerance, sloth, envy, none of those things are compatible with Christ. They are incompatible with Christ and therefore they will keep the Holy Spirit from dwelling in your temple. If you keep the Holy Spirit out, another spirit will dwell therein. You will draw the other spirits that are compatible with your impatience, with your selfishness, with your sloth, and they will control your body and your destiny. Just as, you know, the, those plates that I talked about in um, Semitics, the, those those plates, or, you know, sometimes it can be like a pool of oil or water or whatever, 
they absorb the vibration. They reflect the vibration back on itself when it gets to the edges and it creates these patterns. Well, inside your body, you have cells. Millions and millions and millions and millions of cells. And each one of them have a skin around the cell. You know, there's plasma and protoplasma. There's this shell there. And that receives vibrations. It creates vibrations. And they're all interconnected. What do you think is happening in your individual cells? These millions upon millions upon millions of individual cells. Some of them flowing as part of your blood system. Some of them stationary as fat. Some of them stationary as muscle, tendons, whatever. All cells. What is happening to those cells, to that living tissue, when you're angry? When you're unforgiving? When you're judgmental? When you're impatient? That frequency of that impatience, that anger, that resentment, that unforgiveness is vibrating in your body in a way not in accordance with the Holy Spirit. In every cell of your body is receiving that signal and manifesting that signal and vibrating that signal all the way around the cell and all the way into the core of the cell. And it is triggering disease. It is triggering uh, poor health. It is triggering the growth of your body. Everybody, everybody talks about triggering today. You say a certain word and you've triggered somebody and they get all upset and they start yelling fascist and they want to punch you because you said something. They found offensive. They were offended by what you said. But anybody who reacts like that, they're carrying that offense. They're making a home in themselves for that offense. Forgiveness is the end of that offense. It's gone. It passed through you. You know, shields up. You know, and it just goes around you and it doesn't hurt you. Because you're shielded. Because you're not filled with judgment. You're filled with forgiveness. That's walking in forgiveness. Walking in forgiveness is a powerful armor of God. Because you're ready to forgive not only your enemies, but your friends, and your, not only your friends, but your enemies. Sometimes it's hard to forgive your friends. If you can't forgive your friends for what they've done, but you can forgive your enemy, the relationship you had with your friend was not born of Christ. It was a, a, a relationship born out of dependence. It was your blood-sucking the life out of your friend. You had an un, or he out of you, one or the other. It was an unhealthy relationship. That's why you can't forgive them. Because if you had Christ's relationship with them, Yahweh's relationship with them, you'd be able to forgive them. And your forgiveness would not push, your forgiveness would not push them into a corner of control. It, it, it might uh, entrap them to some degree, but it wouldn't be you entrapping them. It would be, they'd be trapped by the truth. They would have no escape from the truth. So if, if a wife is uncooperative with a husband and gives him a hard time and all this kind of stuff, there's probably something wrong with the husband. Now, there may be something wrong with the wife as well, but there's probably something wrong with the husband and vice versa. 
If the husband is unresponsive and unrighteous with his wife, it's probably because there's something missing in the wife. Something wrong with the wife. And something wrong with him. The reality is, is that, you know, nobody can take advantage of Christ unless he wants them to. He wants to let them do that. There's no power that can overcome the power of Christ. And so, therefore, there's no power to overcome the power of Christ in you. If if your spouse makes you mad, if your spouse makes you weak or nervous or whatever, that's telling you there's something wrong in you. Now, there may be something wrong with them, but that's not, pointing that out is not fixing you. So, if you're always pointing out what's wrong with your spouse... Rather than looking for why can't you help your spouse be more patient, more forgiving, more loving? Is it because you're just talking to them? No, you have to speak to them in spirit and in truth. You can't just say the words. You have to alter, or actually you can't even alter yourself. You have to allow yourself to be altered by the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God needs to be your armor. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that it, that the Spirit of God means that I'm going to follow this rule and this rule and this rule and I'm going to not have this symbol and I'm not going to say this word and I'm going to say these words. All external stuff. It's not spiritual stuff. It's all, it's all putting on the wardrobes of the Pharisees. You know. They, they they have the fine linen and all this stuff, but they're not spiritually connected with the truth. You know, the, the, the teachings of Rudolf Steiner, and again, I'm not promoting Rudolf Steiner, but, you know, they have a very heady way of describing it. Is it more specifically, it aims to develop faculties of perceptive imagination, inspiration, and institution through the cultivation of a form of thinking independent of the sensory experience and to present the results thus derived in a manner subject to rational verification. I mean, like, what the heck does that mean? Well, actually, I kind of know what he means by that, but it's very intellectual. So, really, really what we want to know is what is spiritual that's not dependent upon the sensory world, but yet we sense, we have some sort of sense of that spirit, the effects of that spirit. And it, it can be shown with rational verification. Well, this is the life of Christ. He was the rational verification of a spirit-filled life. So what's your verification of a spirit-filled life? Your life is a mess. You've got all kinds of problems, and they're manifested in your family and everything. So what's the problem? Is you haven't really fully repented, and nobody has. And a lot of people's life is a mess, and there's all kinds of problems, but they're varying degrees. But we realize that we can't do anything about the rest of the world. We can't fix the rest of the world can be fixed by Christ. We have to set aside our pride, our arrogance, our our selfishness. 
and realize, I can't fix this, but God can fix this. The church can't fix it, but God can fix this. My minister can't fix this, but God can fix this. I have to immerse myself in the idea of forgiveness and giving. I have to let go of my resentments, my anger, my impatience, my self-righteousness. And just try to be righteous a little way in what I'm doing. So in other words, Christ came to serve. You have to come to serve. You have to choose to come to serve. Nobody go back to the beginning of Christian economics. You can't be forced. You can't be threatened. You can't be coerced. You can't be offered, you know, I'll pat you on the head if you be good. I'll scratch your back if you be good. You can't be good for that reward. You have to be good for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, what well, I think that's in a song somewhere. You have to be seeking the righteousness of God for the righteousness of God's sake. And God is the only one who can show you what that righteousness is. We can talk about it. You know, that it's not righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. But just because you're home teaching your kids doesn't make it good. You may still bring selfishness into that, self-righteousness into that, instead of God's righteousness. You may think that you're better because you're homeschooling and other people are not. Well, you don't want to do that. Now, that the tendency to think that is going to be there. But when you see that you're doing that, you have to let it go. You know, he says, develop faculties of perceptive imagination. Oh, boy, that's kind of dangerous. I don't know that he actually even said that. That's somebody else's paraphrasing. Uh, inspiration and intuition. Now, inspiration and intuition. Now, there is, there is an inspiration and intuition that comes from your subconscious. But there's also a spiritual inspiration and therefore intuition that comes from your spirit. But you don't want it coming from your spirit. You want it coming from the Spirit of God. That's called revelation. That's something a little bit different. Often different. It can appear almost the same thing. That's the thing is people think that they are receiving revelation when they're actually just perceiving their own personal imagination. So it has their, their revelation needs to be in conformity to Christ. And And Christ's thinking. God has to write upon your heart and upon your mind. We have to be very careful of creating symbols and images of the kingdom and trying to conform to those those images of the kingdom. We need the heart and mind of Christ. And the only one who can give you the heart and mind of Christ is Christ. I can't do it. I can talk about it, but I can't do it. And this has to, you have to receive this internally in you. In order to receive this internally in you, you have to be still. You have to set aside your ambitions, your self-righteousness. That's a very humble place. That's when you immerse yourself in that humility of God in Christ. And one of the things that helped you get there, you know, when you tense your muscles really hard, you know, and pull and pull and pull, and now you want to relax them, they don't relax as easy. It takes a little bit of concentration to relax them. 
So you've been tense real hard in, in your own self-righteousness. Now you have to let go of your self-righteousness and accept the righteousness of God. So how do you accept the righteousness of God? Well, one of the things you do is you serve other people with no hope of reward from those people. You have the hope of reward from God, but you only have the hope. You can't, you can't make it like an entitlement. You have to forgive other people. You forgive your spouse, you forgive your neighbor, you forgive the government, you forgive the Illuminati, you forgive all those people. You walk in forgiveness. God will take care of them. You don't need to judge them. You need to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness in your relationships with everybody else around you, near you and far away. You need to be circumcised in the heart. You need to cut off your desire to be right and learn to accept God's version of what is right. Not what you imagine God's version of right is, but what God's version of right really is. Romans 2.29 says, But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. In other words, you don't, you're not going to get my hand patting you on the head. I'm not going to be scratching your back. I'm not going to be rubbing and massaging you. Now, Modern church today, your ministers are supposed to conjole you. They're supposed to be comforting you. They're supposed to be, you know, making you feel wanted and gathering you to them, you know, and gathering you to the congregation. Wants everybody in the church to shake hands, give everybody a hug and all that kind of stuff, which you can do. But that's not circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart is praise is not of men. But of God. God is your comforter. Not me. I'm not going to conjole you. I'm not going to hug you and all that stuff. Now I might do some of those things sometimes. Don't look for it. Because I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to sick the dogs on you either. If you're herding sheep. You you want to get them to bundle up. In a group. You sick the dog on them. They'll bundle up in a group. They'll gather in a group. And, and they'll go where you, you tell that dog to take them. That's not the way congregations are in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to bundle you up. When I first got sheep, I tell this story all the time. When I first got sheep, I had black-faced sheep and they didn't have that herd instinct. They'd been in a field fence for so long. Generation after generation after generation. They didn't know how to stick together. They know how to look for the clover and the softer food and the better tasting food. And they were filling their bellies. You take them out on the desert, you better be wearing sneakers. Because you're going to do some running. Because they're going to be all over the place. You're going to wear your dog out trying to keep them guys together. Well, we don't have no black-faced sheep anymore. We got white-faced sheep. Rain sheep. They stick together on their own. Still have a few cores now and then, but they've learned to stick together on their own. I don't have to run around them all the time. Say, okay, is everybody here? Everybody here? Everybody here? You know, I'm counting the sheep every few minutes. Everybody here? Everybody here? I don't have to do that. 
Because they're, they're made to be free on the range. They will stick together. They will show up for a minister's call. They will show up for a congregation call. They will show up because they know they got to stick together or the coyotes will eat them alive. They know that. It's ingrained in them. Generation after generation. Are you a range sheep? You black-faced farm flock, fenced-in sheep. Well, you've been the one. you got to become the other. You got to get circumcised of the heart. You don't need me, my praise. My patting you on the head, my hugging you, my making you feel good. You need the praise of God. When you have that, you will be content with that. That is far better than I can do. And that's, that's that inward circumcision of the heart that you need. And like I said, you, you can look, go to Deuteronomy 10:16. Circumcision, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Or Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart. I mean, I'm not doing it. And the heart of thy seed, your children, will they will be affected by this change in you when you receive that circumcision of the heart. To love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live and that your children may live. They will be blessed by your humble decision to stop being self-righteous and start just being righteous. Little things. Loving your neighbor, loving your spouse, loving your children, loving your grandchildren, taking care of one another, loving your neighbor as much as you love your family. Jeremiah 4.4 Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your heart. Ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire. Is that what you're doing? Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench because of the evil of your doing. We are evil souls. We are neglectful souls. You know, like from the beginning, that I mean, one of the words, there's actually a couple different words for circumcise. Namal is one of them, which is nun men... Lamad, and it has to do with, you know, being cut off. But another one that is probably, you know, a little bit more, uh, common is, uh, mul. And, uh, mul, which is mem, uh, vav, lamad. Mem having to do with flow. Bob having to do with divide or connect. It can mean a division or connect. Connect at this spot of division. And Lamad, which is your hand. The the thing that you do your work with. uh, The the blood flows down into. This is why meditation often involves the hand. Because that's such an instrument of your daily life. You know, an amazing creation of your fingers and hand and what it can do. 
But the mem, the flow and the cut of that thing off. In other words, what are you, are you, you supposed to cut off your hand? You know, I mean, there's parables about that. If your sin, hand be a, an occasion of sin, better you cut it off. Well, they don't actually want you to cut your hand off. What they're talking about is cutting your, your personal desire, your motivation of wantonness off. Which it goes back to what I was saying, you know, that's not a good motivator. <laughs> fear that you're going to, you know, desires or fear of the loss of your, your, uh, you know, your wealth. You know, if you don't do this, I will take this away from you. Fines and punishment. Not good motivator. So this circumcision is that you're setting aside your willfulness. You're not going to decide good and evil for yourself. You're not going to decide good and evil for your brother. You're not really deciding good and evil for your son. You're pointing to what is good and evil uh, according to the will of God. But you're not ruling over people. Now, of course, your son, when he's under your household and authority, you do have a right and responsibility to rule over him. But as they grow older, you want them to become men who are making decisions for themselves. Your daughters and your sons as well. You don't want to take away the decision-making capacity of your of your spouse, even. You want to give them the right to decide. You want them to love you because they want to love you. Not because you want them to love you. And you want your congregation to come together because they want to love one another. Because Christ is in them. You don't want them to come together because... You've gathered them like chicks and sheep or you've sicked the dogs on them or you promised them pats on the head. You want them to come because of the righteousness of God. And until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.